Welcome to the Evaluating Biopharma podcast, where we provide industry decision makers with insider access to veteran bioprocessing experts willing to pay it forward so you can leverage their knowledge, learn from their successes, and even avoid repeating their mistakes. Marty, if you wouldn't mind, um, let's get this just kicked off with a little brief sure. background uh, on yourself. Yeah, so uh, hello, everyone. Uh, good morning, good evening. Um, so I'm Marty Gidlin. I'm the uh, uh, Senior Vice President and uh, Head of Tech Ops at Senti Biosciences. Our, our products are uh, Allo uh, NK cars. And so I lead uh, the process development group within Senti to basically come up with the process to provide uh, that material for our upcoming clinical trials, hopefully by the end of next year. Uh, we are currently a preclinical company, but hopefully to file uh, our IND and our first product uh, for AML next year. Um, uh, it's kind of a turnabout for me. Uh, most of my career has been a T-cell biologist from training in a transplant lab. Uh, going forward, I've had um, 10 years at Novartis where I helped develop the uh, uh, Kim Raya process after we did the tech transfer for Penn and then at Poseida and um, PACT, uh, where we were looking at non-viral ways to make uh, CAR-Ts. So uh, this is kind of a, a turnabout for me as I've treated NKs as a contaminant through most of my career, and now it's my main focus of trying to understand and, and make a product uh, uh, that is uh, truly off the shelf uh, for the treatment of uh, various cancers. Very interesting. So what maybe once was uh, thought of as a contaminant, now therapeutic avenue. They're, uh, they're interesting little guys. Um, uh, commonalities with T-cells, but a lot of interesting differences that uh, do present some unique challenges with respect to finding a manufacturing process that, um, uh, particularly within an aloe field, because the whole point is is we would like to make enough doses to treat numerous patients, you know, instead of multiple small batches for individual patients, we are really scaling up uh, into multiple liter scale uh, to treat many patients uh, from a different, from a, a single batch. So it's, it's uh, uh, different complexities, different ideas about how to scale up. Um, and we certainly had the conversation about how you do a lot of your PD with healthy donors um, and that's really what our starting material is uh, going forward for our product. And we are uh, understanding more of the nuances from donor to donor, but also leukophoresis to leukophoresis from the same donor <clears throat> that can also present challenges. So, so knowing that is, you know, if you are <clears throat> looking at our phase one, which is, which is where we're going to start like everybody else, you understand the number of patients at each dose level you sort of managing your expectations at that level, which is, you know, could be 30 to 40 patients worth. And, and so, but depending on your current process, can that basically feed enough um, material to support that clinical trial? And one of the things that, you know, uh, Jonathan, you pointed out in the earlier conversation, I mean, most CAR-T therapies are one shot. You know, it's, it's uh, yeah. you know, there's very little, um, uh, even though people are looking at it, there's very little data on second and third shots of an autologous therapy to the same patient to either ignite a response or, or uh, continue a response. 
the clinical data with respect to uh, NKs, particularly L1Ks, is probably going to be a multi-infusion uh, cycle and maybe a couple of different cycles. So now you're so now it's just not one dose per patient and you're done. It's multiple doses per patient that might be spread over you know weeks or months in order to ignite or, and maintain a clinical response. So that also impacts on your manufacturing expert expectations. It's not you're going from single shots to multiple shots or multiple doses per patient. And how do you basically do that math to figure out how much you have to make and vial and put on the shelf in order to meet that expectation? Right. Are there particular nuances there uh, for the manufacturing strategy that um, you'd like to speak about? So you're, you're, we were talking LONK and the, the challenges in the field regarding how that's maybe different? Well, you've got, you know, with autologous therapy, you know, as, as you guys alluded to earlier, you're sort of stuck with what you get. I mean, you're trying to understand, you know, different, uh, different diseases, different um, impacts of treatment on diseases to the starting material that you get from the patient that you're going to manufacture from and treat. <clears throat> with aloe, you know, you're starting from healthy material. And I know there's other ways of doing it. There's cord blood and there's uh, also uh, IPSCs like, like FATE and other people are trying to do uh, that kind of minimize that variability. But, <clears throat> you know, we're screening. One of our biggest jobs is screening potential donors for their ability to be activated, transduced, and, ex and expand in a manner that we think is necessary to get multiple doses out of a run. So right off the bat, we're working with our vendors to try to identify recallable donors, because that's important, um, you know, in order to um, pinpoint uh, uh, that fraction of, of the donor population that fits our needs. And, and, that's a, and, that's, and that's a lot of work with our vendor as well as within the company to come up with that screening process that can more or less predict how it may, um, <clears throat> may act in our clinical scale manufacturing. So that's something that is really important right off the bat and kind of goes to some of the questions about how to define uh, starting material uh, going forward. Right. And on that idea of letting the science drive your strategy, uh, I think we hear things like this a lot, but put, putting it in practice is a bit different sometimes than what people may think. Do you, do you have any examples of this idea of how to let the science drive your strategy or operations? Yeah, I mean, I'm learning. Uh, it's, it's been quite a learning process about NKs because so much has been done to, to really understand the biology of natural killer cells. Uh, and what they can and cannot do. And so you're trying to use the science of the biology to help you understand uh, uh, the best scenario in order to uh, um, activate them. Uh, we are a feeder-based system, so we have to work out that work stream. Uh, transduction, uh, we use retrovirus. So basically, how do you understand uh, what kind of vector do you want uh, and, and the size of your package uh, for NKs? And then, you know, NKs are also fairly finicky about what they need to sustain ex expansion post-activation and, and what kind of cell you want at the end. I mean, it's for NKs, it's, it's primarily all about cytotoxic activity. You know, are they good killers? Hence the name, you know, so you don't want to lose that. 
but you also know that you want some durability uh, with that. And the science suggests that sometimes expansion profile and cytotoxic profile don't necessarily match. So how do you thread that uh, uh, difference in, in your, and how do you control your process with either cytokine combinations, basal media, uh, serum and so forth, and even uh, platform uh, to really get the product that you think you need with the right, with the right attributes at the end that you think is going to uh, make a good clinical product. So I think in the NKs, as well as the Ts, is the, the, the basic, just the basic biology of the NK really has a lot to teach us about how to do this better. Yeah, very interesting. Um, along those lines, do you have any uh, recommendations for the audience about using data in CMC to look for or implement any, uh, you know, so, so to, to go along with the data, but to implement continuous improvements or to do things better? better well it's, it's like sort of like where do you start i mean right right i mean it sort of goes like what you said before i mean the the data and your control charting and everything else is really if anything as you scale it because you're getting in multiple leader scales uh for allo um that's extremely important about controlling your process and 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 really what are the attributes to really to look for besides you know cell health um, you know, you got to look at um, things other than just viability. Um, and then, um, as you guys mentioned before, just, you know, basic parameters of following a culture, um, you know, metabolites, dissolved oxygen, lactic, glucose, metabolic activity or cell cycle, uh, um, where these guys are. I think all of that, you know, as far as your in-process testing becomes a lot more important. And for us, if we're going to be doing really um, large batches, um, then automation really comes into hand too. But with automation, you need to know how to you know, derive your set points, uh, your upper and lower limits for each of your processes so that basically the instrument can help you uh, uh, better, maintain your, um, uh, better maintain your process throughout. So, uh, yeah, the data stream is huge. And, and basically, how do you... Um, manage that, I think, is, is going to be, it's always going to be a challenge. We had a question come in here um, on the topic of technology. What kind of technologies are you looking for handling downstream processing at allogenetic uh, scale? Well, I mean, <clears throat> you know, bioreactors is sort of like the large term that we're looking at. Uh, and um, but also you're kind of closing it up all the way through. But right now, just for the expansion, if you know if you can get you know, higher cell concentrations per mill uh, in a smaller uh, uh, volume, that's something that we're really interested in doing. That really means you have to understand how to control uh, that process at that end. But you know, various you know wave bioreactors, uh, people are uh, turning to um, uh, uh, stir tanks. Uh, to really get up to like, you know, 25, 50 liters is sort of like, I think, where the industry is going to be going in order to meet that batch uh, uh, requirement uh, going forward. So it, it really comes into a lot more uh, control of, of the expansion process as opposed to, you know, throwing cells in the back and letting them rock uh, uh, with minimal uh, inspection other than doing a cell count every now and then. Right. Um, 
you know, so it's, it's, as you guys mentioned earlier, I think it's, you know, the, the systems are becoming much more sophisticated in providing data, but you also want reactive analytics and you want the system eventually to perform uh, the fix uh, independently of an operator pushing a button, you know? So, so I think that's where, you know, at least in the allo field, we really need to go. Um, there's, you know, they're getting better at it. There's um, companies out there like um, uh, Ori and um, Ori Biotech, Sativa. Everybody's trying to come up with those kind of integrated systems uh, to provide not only the data, but also the automatic uh, uh, reaction uh, uh, to um, uh, basically attack the problem before uh, the operator has to do anything. So that's that's all going to be driven by data during process development and early clinical trial uh, manufacturing. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, to be more nimble with, with real-time analytics and data is uh, certainly where the industry has been chasing to try to get to for a long time. If we, if we run that back to the beginning, um, maybe this idea about characterizing starting materials then. So, how about those materials which go into or come out of the thaw? Any, any uh, thoughts on the? Oh best way man, to uh, I've I've become a um, an acolyte to uh, uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Hubble out of Minnesota and other people within the cryo field. Um, you know, they are really bringing something that most of us thought th about doing the last thing we did uh, and bringing it to the forefront. Uh, and as I said, you know, for at least for our process, we have three separate work streams. We have, you know, generating our uh, natural killer cell banks from our healthy donor, uh, our uh, feeder cell, which has to be X-irradiated and frozen, and then obviously our final product that is uh, processed and frozen as well. So we have three cryo streams within our current process that we are looking to optimize to make sure that we basically get good recovery and actually recovery might be a better um, CQA or attribute uh, as opposed to viability uh, coming out of the thaw uh, because then you know how many cells you're actually dealing with and you, and you can account for any uh, uh, loss. And, and as you know, people are getting more sophisticated about cryoformulations with respect to how to um, you know, better maintain the cells going into cryo, um, during cryo, but also post-cryo, what are the best thaw methods? Because you basically want to minimize the um, uh, the water transfer uh, back into the cell. Uh, uh, so, you, so, you, so you basically tone down whatever sw or, uh, membrane swelling as a consequence of that that can lead to further damage of the cells uh, going forward. And that has to be translated to the clinical site as well. It can't just be a lab thing that you do. So this is learnings that we're trying to do through PD that we can present a kit or a process at either the clinical pharmacy or wherever that, okay, you need to think, you need to follow the cells in this fashion under these conditions to optimize recovery so that the patient gets, you know, the majority of the cells that are ready to go once they hit the vein. So um, I think that is, is really something that we're paying a lot of attention to. I know the uh, uh, the last couple of meetings I've been at, that's been a, a, almost a day-long conversation about this. And, and I think it's getting uh, much more sophisticated uh, uh, about how to do this. So it's, it's, it's really exciting, actually. Uh, uh, 
uh, to really uh, spend a lot of time on this aspect that I think has been, for the most part, um, been minimal importance uh, uh, for us going forward. Yeah, and Marty, to this point, um, a question came in, not only recovery out of cryo, but also maintaining killing functions important. Is there anything to be done to improve? Yeah, great. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I saw that from uh, Kevin in the chat. Um, <clears throat> I mean, the obvious answer is, is yes, what can be, <laughs> we need to do that. Um, um, but also it's just, I think for the most part, you just want them metabolically active coming out of the thaw and able to react uh, to an antigen, uh, to an antigen or, or a ligand stimulus in the case of uh, NKs. And so how do you uh, build those systems uh, with respect to potency or uh, latency or however else you want to um, look at it as a, as a way to try to predict what's going to happen, uh, um, you know, a uh, post-infusion in the patient. Uh, so there are certain uh, ex vivo stuff that we can do uh, to try to do that. There's animal experiments that sort of give you uh, at least trafficking information. Can they find the tumor and, and uh, kill it, uh, which gives you a, a, a bit of an idea of, of how that's going to work. Uh, but um, I think that it's, it's, um, it, 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 it really might just be uh, disease dependent on how, which uh, cells you want to go forward and how you're going to treat them and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. The last question I wanted to pose um, is on this idea of one size fits all not being realistic. So this is something that you've mentioned before, that it's not realistic or maybe not even possible. Can you explain a bit more about that? Yeah. Um, I, I think that's you know, it, it, I had my first experience with that when I was at Novartis where we had to change our process uh, a bit in order to um, better uh, make product out of lymphoma cells versus acute leukemia cells. Uh, and so, and, and I think that, you know, as we learn more about the role of NKs and the more biology about NKs, we may have to be able to tweak the process to either make more of the same or to, control, or to better control a differentiation, a differentiation type uh, for a liquid disease versus a solid tumor. And, and I think that's just going to take clinical experience and, and clinical feedback uh, uh, once we get into the, both of those um, oncology realms. Um, and, and I think you just have to be prepared um, with being able to tweak your process uh, to adapt to those different situations. And when I say tweak, I mean, it's just like, you know, NK cells can have different uh, subtypes and, and different cytokine uh, combinations can uh, modulate that uh, as well as time of uh, expansion, either shorter or longer. Uh, so I think that's something that the more we learn about how we can uh, modulate the processes, the more we can understand the feedback we're going to get from the, um, uh, from the clinic about what works best. Yeah, beautiful. A couple questions and comments popped in about um, non-DMSO. So you think part of the answer to better viability and potency? And Dominic mentions that, um, do you think it's as simple as standardizing the cryo processes as an industry? Is it more educating on the fundamentals or, or improving the current solutions? Well, I think all of the above is clearly the answer. Um, 
you know, I mean, for certain cell types, there might be certain standards. Uh, I know a lot of people within the NK field are very proud that they've been able to uh, define proprietary uh, cryoformulations and cryoprocesses that best suit uh, of, uh, their NK. Uh, so that is, a, I think, a point of pride that people are taking this very seriously. But I also think just the education and the fundamentals improving the current solutions um, is, is also important. Uh, that is not a field that has been widely dispersed, I think, within the industry. But I think um, uh, it's getting much more, um, uh, much more uh, uh, visibility now. Uh, about really understanding the cryo process. You know, what happens when you add DMSO or non-DMSO uh, cryoprotective formulations? What happens when you throw it into the uh, controlled um, <clears throat> freezer and, um, and, and so forth? So I think really understanding uh, uh, what those curves mean, how you can adjust the curves during the freezing process uh, <clears throat> is, is really important. Uh, uh, to this industry going forward because we want, you know, the best product going into the patient. So that means good recovery with good viability and good metabolic activity in order to um, seek and kill uh, uh, the different tumors that we're trying to, that we're trying to preach. Hmm. Are there specific cell types or processes that have met the industry requirements for good cryopreservation and, and do not really need further improvements? I, I guess that really depends on who you talk to. <laughs> so um, I think it's a continuum like everything else. Our, I mean, our industry as a whole is still very new. Right. Um, and, and people are constantly looking at ways to uh, improve every aspect of, of the overall process. So um, I think we're just at the beginning to really understanding how best to make and preserve cells uh, uh, to make them the best product going forward. So I, I see this as a continuum. Um, again, you know, the, the non-DMSO containing uh, uh, cryo, uh, cryo formulations are just coming out and being uh, adapted, which have certain advantages uh, to DMSO. Uh, so I think that's just going to take uh, it's going to take some more time. So I, I don't think anybody is is totally happy with their cryo uh, preservation and and how they can um, uh, thaw and, and infuse. So I think that's just again that's just going to be a, a continuous improvement on that front uh, for over the next several years for sure. Yeah. Great. And I wanted to end this um, on, on that comment you made on the newness of this industry uh, segment. So maybe it's a philosophical question, but from where we were five, ten years ago to now, in your mind, does the next five years look similarly uh, radical as far as change or more so? Um, well, you know, we're still we're still having the centralized versus decentralized conversations about manufacturing, right? Um, particularly within the autologous field uh, um, uh, going forward. So uh, so I think that's you know basically how can you downsize and scatter at the sites that you're going to treat and still make the same product uh, with with the appropriate analytics. With Allo, I'm not sure that's as big as a question. Uh, you just want to be able to serve. Um, you know, different sites from, from maybe one or two manufacturing, like East Coast, West Coast, 
you know, Midwest or whatever, yeah. uh, uh, and just do it that way. Um, I think the biggest impact on this whole cell field is, is like these new companies that just came out that are looking at in vivo generation of CAR T's or NKs. Um, you know, how is that really going to um, affect uh, uh, the overall just, you know, taking starting material uh, from a patient or healthy donor and making a product out of that? Uh, I think over the next three to five years, we're going to have a much better idea about how possible and how effective that is going forward. And, and I think the next thing is like we're all doing very homogeneous populations. Uh, you know, 90%, you know, obviously 100% CAR T's and, and so forth. I, I think the human body uh, uses usually a little bit of everything uh, to attack a virus or an infection or a, a tumor. And, and I think maybe the next generation is also, you know, being um, called out by some companies. Uh, you know, Takeda just bought Gamma Delta. And, and, and Gamma Delta basically has been showing that growing NKs and Gamma Delta Ts together in one batch uh, seems to have a higher efficacy as opposed to um, uh, uh, just NKs or Delta, uh, Gamma Deltas alone. So I think maybe the next path is, is sort of like, you know, you know, growing, having multiple cells per patient or per target uh, that you can deliver. And, you know, so maybe a company like us, maybe we're starting out with uh, LONKs, but we would have an, uh, an LOT car to follow up with the same target to give durability to the response once the NKs have initiated it. So yeah. I think I think maybe over the next uh, three to five years, that might be um, a really interesting development if we could uh, figure out how to uh, um you know, grow a combination of cells together in a certain proportions uh, and to be able to deliver that as a drug. Uh, so uh, I'm looking forward to that because I think that's really cool. I think that kind of goes back to the basic biology of how the immune system works. And I would love to see uh, more efforts in, in trying to uh, uh, do that kind of combination, maybe even followed by uh, a vaccine as, you know, Moderna has just um, uh, announced uh, about uh, uh, their uh, skin uh, cancer vaccine. So I, I just think over the next three or five years, the combination of different modalities is, is going to come to the fore uh, and really show a, a big uptick in how we can attack these different types of tumors. Love it. It's a perfect place to pause that. Marty, I thank you very much for your time, and you've given us all a lot to think about here. Great. No, a pleasure. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast please visit www.evaluatingbiopharma.com to access the on-demand video and to download the summary article. You can also access the Evaluating Biopharma content archive, sign up for our newsletter, and register to attend an upcoming Evaluating Biopharma virtual networking event. Feedback or suggestions? We'd love to hear from you. 